0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Most of us have something that we want to change in our lives. But there's a big difference between making small incremental changes, which can, of course, be great, and really swinging for the fences and embracing big radical change. Those big changes can feel really destabilizing, they can feel uncomfortable, but they are often the things that really move the ball of our lives forward. And that's the focus of today's conversation with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Ben is an organizational psychologist and the author of eight books, including Personality Isn't Permanent, Willpower Doesn't Work, and his new book, 10X Is Easier Than 2X. As a PhD student, Ben was the number one blogger on medium.com, and his posts were read over a hundred million times. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ben. We talked a lot about how we can bring our future self into the present moment, act from that future self, and use it to create a radically different future from the present that we're living in right now. Because we all have things, or at least I certainly have things, that I look back 10 years into the past, and I go, wow, I really wish that I could go back to that moment in time and act from it incredibly differently with the knowledge, with the skill that I have these days. And that's an opportunity that is truly available to us in this present moment, which is a really cool thing to think about and to talk about. And we explored so much during this conversation. We talked about dealing with various forms of defensiveness as they arise. We talked about contextualizing the past changing the internal views that we have about ourselves. We talked about self-compassion a lot. And toward the end of the conversation, we even wandered into some, some Buddhist philosophy around reconciling being in the present moment with having more of a future orientation and how those two things are really more like different sides of the same coin. I really hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did. So here is my conversation with Dr. Ben Hardy. Ben, thanks for doing this with me today. How are you? Doing really good. Happy to be with you. Yeah, same. And we were talking a little bit before we got recording. And one of the things that I said that I appreciate about your work is that I think that you just have the really unique ability to communicate complex ideas from psychology in ways that are really accessible to people. And so that's just a great skill in general. And that's already in the title of your newest book, which is 10x is easier than 2x, which, you know, it's, probably a deliberately provocative title. It's the sort of thing that people look at and go, wait, what? A little bit. But you're speaking to, I think, a really important distinction between different types of change. So I was wondering if we could just start by you laying that out for people.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, my third book in a trilogy with Dan Sullivan. To make it as simple as I can in the beginning about the difference between 10x versus 2x thinking, one way of looking at it is, is if you're going for, call it just 2x growth. Then it kind of assumes you're going for um, more of what you already have. It's linear progress. It's kind of what would be considered what would be called like a past present orientation, where you're using the past to drive future goals. And it's so it's very linear. It's like, and it's also like very brute force. Like if you wanna if you wanna go for two x, you, you, you're honestly not thinking creatively. You're just thinking like in terms of output, like more input, mm-hmm. more output. So it's very linear would be the easiest way to say it. And it's coming from the past. Whereas ten x like 10x is so so much different. It's so big that it, it requires you to think fundamentally differently about what you're doing. To go 10x, and we, we used the 80-20 principle as the model or as one model to explain this, which is, you know, the 80-20 principle says that 80% of your results comes from 20% of what you do. And so kind of using that model, if you want to go for 2x, you can keep 80% of your life because you really aren't changing that much. You're just kind of being a little bit, a little bit more of what you already are, whereas to go 10x, only like the pure 20% is going to make it up through that filter and everything else is going to get weeded out and so once you get up to 10x everything looks radically different you know as you and I were even describing at the beginning 10x is a qualitative change it's about doing something fundamentally different and often involving less whereas 2x mm-hmm. is thinking in terms of more and so it's a lot slower thinking
0: yeah we talk a lot on the podcast about the more internal forms of change right and The 10X versus 2X change has a lot of natural applications for things like productivity. Where do I want to spend my time in my work life? How do I want to grow my business? All of that stuff. And that is great and incredibly useful for people. And we're mostly focused a little bit more on the interior. But I thought that this concept still had a lot of applications there because we see something a lot of the time in psychology where people are very open to doing a slightly different version of what they're already doing. But what is like a big edge for people is often a more fundamental shift in their behavior into like stepping into a new way of being is a phrase that Rick likes to use a lot on the podcast. And that qualitative shift is what I think you're speaking to with the 10x change. It's like the big transformational shift in somebody's life. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, I don't think 2x in terms of a mindset
1: towards the future is transformation. I think it's it may be a little bit of change. But 10X is a fundamental transformation and it, it is purely internal. I mean, obviously the mm-hmm. external happens and you can use kind of an external goal to create changes on the inside. But most of what you're doing right now has no relevance at 10X. And so it forces you to have much more of an honesty filter about yourself. You know, if you're going to go for linear growth, you really don't need to fine-tooth examine all aspects of your life because most of it's going to keep going with you into the future. But if you've got such a fundamentally different future, it, it kind of spotlights most of the areas in your life don't resonate with that future. And so you have to be a lot more honest. One of my favorite quotes from Alcoholics Anonymous is that all, all progress starts by telling the truth. <laughs> and so like, yeah, it forces you to be honest about the areas of your life that are in misalignment with the future you want. And it actually makes being honest, honest about those things easier.
0: Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by 80% of what you're doing right now doesn't fit in that 10X future, if you want to kind of put it that way? 10x really is very
1: different let me give myself as an example and 10x is you don't have to get overly literal although you can you can put just a number say i want to go from a million downloads to 10 million or i want to go from a, a million dollars to 10 million sure but it is more of an analogy of
0: a fundamental yeah, it's an change. analogy a principle yeah. an idea totally yeah
1: right. and so like as an example like I, I i see going from crawling to walking as a 10x like you, sure. it's a fundamental shift. Like it's a qualitative shift. Like now there's so many different possibilities as a walker than you had as a crawler. For me to give an example with the 80-20, when I was doing my PhD, mm-hmm. I was very clear that call it my 10x feature self was a professional author. Although I had zero credentials, I had no website, I had zero blogs, nothing to be said. And also like writing skills As all I had was a growing knowledge of psychology and a lot of journal filled journals and a future self in my mind of someone who was a professional author. And so I guess you could say like a a 10x upgrade for myself at that moment in time back in 2015. And this was kind of just what I visualized was myself as a professional author with one of the major publishers supporting my family. And so like to clarify that future from where I was is such a big change. But by clarifying that vision of my future self, I was able to actually like identify what 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 would be the 20% that would get me there my 20% was, was deeply getting 10 times better, qualitatively better at writing headlines, growing an audience. Like that was my 20% that if I went all in on the 10 X becomes pretty natural. But what happens is, is once you go through that process where you actually do qualitatively get better and more skilled and more, you know, you get more refined in that way. Now, once you go through that, you're now in a different sphere, right? Like you're now in a different place. So becoming my future self, now I'm thinking about something totally different. Maybe it's writing 10 times better books, which is very different from blogging. And so now blogging, something that was in my 20% to get me here, actually shifts into my 80%, where it's like now it's something that I have to strip out and get rid of because it no, no longer resonates with the new 10X. And so, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a continuous purging process, but the 80% is really just anything
0: that represents your current or past self that's holding you back. Yeah. So let's shift into talking about that real quick here, because you're making an important distinction between a future self and a past self. One of the things you talk about pretty regularly is acting in alignment or acting from a future self as opposed to being driven by a past version of yourself. Would you mind sort of explaining what that means? One simple way of looking at it is, is you can have a past-present
1: orientation where your identity is primarily driven by events of the past. And even what mm-hmm. would be considered Robert Keegan, the Harvard psychologist, would call it hidden commitments, that we have hidden commitments and beliefs we developed in the past that are driving our behavior now. And I think that a lot of people approach life that way, where they're letting what has happened dictate what they're going to do next, mm-hmm. even in terms of their friends, their relationships. You know, he was my friend last year. He was my friend in high school, so he might as well continue to be my friend tomorrow, right? Right. Stuff like that, whereas yeah, totally. having a more future self-orientation is where you, you think ahead. You think like more imaginatively. Using Albert Einstein language, imagination is more important than knowledge. And so it's like, who is my desired future self? Or who is the person I want to be? What do I want to be doing? And, and using that lens, and obviously there's a lot of interesting research on this topic now, heavily developing topic. The 10x language that I'm using is, is using a seemingly impossible future self. Impossible from your current self. Obviously, Mm -hmm. for a lot of high achievers, if you look at where your life is right now and you zoom back 10 years to your former self, a lot of the things that are normal to you now would seem impossible to your past self back then. And so you can kind of do the same thing with your future, which is taking a seemingly impossible future self and and then using that as the lens for for the decisions you make here and now. Because if that's the lens and if that's the filter then it quickly highlights what I'm describing as is the eighty percent, and the eighty percent is most of the things of your current and past self that no longer resonate with that future. And so you're actually using the future as the filter for your decision making, for your action, for your strategy.
0: Yeah, and what's what's inherent in this process is some openness to possibility, and that's just a huge block I think for a lot of people, like even myself when I first popped open the book. And started reading through it my immediate filter was like this is some capitalistic productivity mumbo jumbo a little bit like that was my defensive structure that came forward when i first started to encounter the ideas because i think that for a lot of people maybe even myself included in that moment there's a resistance to an openness to the possibility of like what could be true for you like what could be available for you if you were willing to Strip away some aspects of your life that weren't actually serving that future self, and instead we're being driven by, by pursuit orientation in the moment, or your desire to fulfill like a, a base need, or just something that like is very pleasure seeking in the here and now, as opposed to being oriented toward a possible future. The great part about this is, is that
1: each person can decide what 10x means to them. You know, it could be 10x more love. It could be 10x whatever it is. Is you use what you want. And I do like the idea of openness to possibility. One of my psychology professors explained agency as the belief in possibility, right? Like agency mm-hmm. being the idea that I can do otherwise. Like I, I may have that. I may have done something like this for a long time in the past, but the belief of possibility is, is that just because that's how things have been, there is possibility that things can be different. One of the core findings of future self-research, a lot of it from Daniel Gilbert and others at Harvard. It's just that your future self truly, and even Hal Hirschfeld, by the way, at UCLA, love his work, but a lot of it is your future self is massively different than, than you expect them to be. Most people project their present onto their future, and so they think that who they are now is for the most part who they are and how they're going to think and what they're going to value, call it in 10 years from now. And so one, one thing I do know is, is that my current self is fleeting and that even in two mm. or three weeks from now, I'll have different opinions about various matters than I do now. I think that that alone creates a growth mindset fixed mindset would be essentially trying to prove you're right. And essentially what that creates is a fragile identity about trying not to fail. Like when you, when you raise a goal up so that, you know, and I explain this in the book, obviously, and use constraint theory to explain it. But when a goal is out of reach, where it doesn't feel like it's too, too possible, at least from your current situation, why that's a useful metaphor or a useful tool is that if the goal is really, really high, not very much is going to get you there. Like it almost forces you to be very strategic where it's just like, no, if you want to, if you want your podcast to have a billion, a billion downloads, like that's ridiculous. And, but, but what that line of thinking allows you to do is it allows you to say, well, what would actually produce a billion downloads? Um, most of what we're doing right now likely wouldn't, but there's a few things that possibly couldn't. So it, it, it also creates what psychologists call pathways thinking, which is more along the lines of it, it allows you to start being way more flexible about how you move forward, and, and you don't have to be as dogmatic about how you do things.
0: Yeah, and I've had to, just to give a little personal disclosure here, I've had to really work on this inside of myself in my life, because I was naturally somebody who was very, very top-down, very cognitive, very head-oriented, and I was the kind of person who would tell you the 20 reasons why something wouldn't work. I was very constraint-oriented. I was very, like, highly rational about it. And if Forrest thought it was a good idea, it was probably a really good idea because I didn't think any ideas were good. And so <laughs> so this is one of those things that I had to really develop inside of myself. And I'm still not totally sure what it was that helped me move more toward an, an orientation toward, like, openness and possibility and future self-identification, whatever you want to call it. I think some of it was that The possibility of the big future thing made me feel emotionally uncomfortable, that there was an emotional component to this whole thing that like I didn't like the way that made me feel inside because it made things feel unstable. There was a lack of like certainty if the way that things are now isn't the way that they're going to feel in the future. And I think that was a big hurdle I had to get over personally.
1: I think that's really interesting. Do you feel like you, I'd be interested in kind of yeah. how, how how you're sitting with that now where you could be open to a big future, but not feel anxious or, you know, like, wh- wh- where do you sit with that now? <sighs> a lot of
0: therapy, man. A lot of therapy. I, <laughs> I mean, jokes aside. Me too, by the way. Yeah. Me too. No, seriously. Yeah, no, I, I think that like we all have, one of the things we talk about on the podcast a lot is this idea of a dreaded experience, which is something that you organize your life around avoiding. And I have a little bit more of an anxious orientation. And so a lot of my behaviors are like security driven, right? And the idea of a possible huge future, even if it sounds positive, comes with a lot of things that don't feel positive in the moment, right? And this is something that I think people lose sometimes because it's like, oh, what's? how could it possibly hurt to contemplate this great positive future? And it's like, well, it requires, as you're saying, often giving up a lot of things in the present that we enjoy. And so even like that optimistic orientation comes with a degree of pain. And then it becomes about distress tolerance. Can you deal with the discomfort in the moment that could like get you to where you want to go?
1: Yeah, and I think that a couple things. One is in the context of this, this idea of 10X versus 2X, there's a few hard aspects of this. One is actually allowing yourself to imagine seemingly 10x ideas right like that's yeah that that, that can be tough for people but the second challenge when you start to actually take those ideas seriously going back to that truth filter is that most of what you're now doing if you want that future and if you're open to admitting that you want that future most of your current self wouldn't meet the filter in other words most of like most of that 80 percent and that the proposition of letting that go is is letting go of your former self letting go of hidden commitments, letting go of belief systems, letting go of even just habits, right? Or, or you know, for, for an entrepreneur who's part of the audience of this, you're a big part of the audience of this book, it could be letting go of needing to be the one who's always doing things, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, mm-hmm. letting someone else be the star, right? Like letting, yeah. the, delegating and letting them get the credit, whereas like you now just provide the ideas. and And, and so you have to let go of the things that and that, that is the hardest part is letting go of that 80%. And as people, what we often do is when we start weeding out the things that no longer resonate with the future we want, out of a coping mechanism, we tend to continually refill it. Like I regularly train and coach people on this subject. And we talk a lot about creating white space. You know, like if you actually had a 20% of your life that you identified as this is the area where I really, really want to just get really good and focused. And so I'm going to peel away 80% of my focus in my life and my habits and distractions, what I have found is that's a lot of white space for people and, and we live in a world where we tend to quickly fill. So like we have a really hard time with white space. So, so one component is that and you can become increasingly what's called psychologically flexible where you don't hold on to your former self as hard and as long and, it's, and it becomes less painful to let things go and more you actually just organically allow yourself to go the direction you're going and you, you become comfortable
0: peeling away the layers. Totally. Just to highlight part of what you're saying here, we think about sunk cost as being oriented toward business, right? Like, I put X number of dollars into this thing, and therefore I'm going to keep on pursuing it past the point that I should be pursuing it because I feel invested in it. But it's just as, and probably even more relevant for people's personal lives. And I think that people can become essentially like trapped in the sunk cost fallacy around previous versions of themselves where they feel commitment to prior behavior and they keep on defending it in the present. Even if they know kind of inside of themselves, like, eh, I should probably let this one go. I mean, you used the exact word in terms of how we describe two X, which is that
1: the two X self will defend itself. Hmm. Very defensive. Also two X people, you know, and 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 this is not about quote unquote being better than other people. It's more about like when there's a loss of synergy. I, I've heard the analogy like when the crab's trying to crawl out of the <laughs> out of the cage and all the other crabs yeah. pull it down. You know, I mean that's yep. that's just one way of looking at it, but I think mostly that's in people's heads. I don't think people are really pulling them back, but I think that we have these, these fears, those sunk costs you're describing where you know, we're afraid. Yeah, one other principle that's very similar to what you're describing is the consistency principle, which is and it's very based on sunk costs and loss aversion, very similar, which is just that to be inconsistent and to be viewed that way comes with a lot of risks. You know, maybe you'll be rejected. And so there are, there's massive risks at letting the future call the shots rather than the past. I mean, there's massive risks. That's why it takes a lot of commitment and
0: courage, um, which is where a lot of evolution is, but certainly there are a lot of risks. So I think that's something that I bumped into in your work. I think that this was in personality isn't permanent. And it really stuck to me. And I think it has to do with what we're talking about right now, which is you had a riff about how believing that there's like a core self or an authentic self inside of us can actually hold us back from changing in useful ways. Uh, could you explain that for people? Because I thought it was pretty provocative.
1: Yeah. And there's debates on this subject, heavy sure. debates. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, even debates between people like Adam Grant and Brene Brown have debated heavily on this subject of authenticity. I think that the the belief in an authentic self assumes that there is a most true version of you that you've got to discover, Right. And why I like the future self researches is that the most true version I could find of myself right now is going to be different from what my future self even five or six months from now can develop because my future self in five or six months is going to know a lot more, right? I do think it's good to be honest with ourselves, you know, and, you know, that's a big actual part of 10xing is being really honest and peeling away the layers of this is not what I want call it the idea of potential, like potential and authenticity remind me of each other. And I don't believe like in an innate potential, I believe that potential is contextual. I believe that potential changes like my potential right now is very different from my potential six months ago, or 12 months ago, or five years ago, like I have totally different potentials. And I I even have different futures, I think about different possibilities. So I I, I think potential is very contextual and situational, and also can be changed. Like if I develop skills, abilities, relationships, I'll have totally different potential. And so I know I
0: shifted from authentic
1: to potential, but I kind of still see it the same way that it's not just innate, that it's something that can change.
0: Yeah, I think the way that you framed it at the time was was less a criticism of the idea that we might have something that is kind of like an authentic self brewing around inside of us that is in some level of formation, right? Like maybe we've gotten there already, maybe it still lies in our future, however you want to think about it. It was less like a criticism of that and more just an idea that people will sometimes use... Just the idea of a presence of an authentic self to stop them from changing because they think that like, if I act in alignment with my authentic self, that means that everything that I do will be natural and easy. It'll like feel good to me. Right. And so therefore anything that doesn't feel natural and easy is not in alignment with my authentic mm. self. And it's like, well, guess what? Change is almost always uncomfortable and hard. So if you're only ever doing what's natural and easy for you, you're not going to change very often. So that's one way where this like notion of a particular version of authenticity can kind of get in the way of people, people changing for the better.
1: I like how you described it much better than I like how I did. <laughs> no, truthfully, and it reminds me so much of a lot of the things that I I appreciate about my current self were very alien to my foreign self.
0: Yeah, same. Truly. I mean, like when I became
1: uh, a foster parent of three kids, and I've spoken openly about this, but like far from natural. Like, I mean, it was, I did not feel, it took me forever to peel away the layers of like actually being able to identify as a father. Not that like it it fit within my belief systems and it fit with like my desires, but, totally, you know, to truly like, love the kids and, and mean it at truly deep levels. It took forever. I mean, it took a long time and, and a lot of deliberate wanting to the level where I chose other, you know, chose it at the expense of other things, you know, in terms of opportunity cost. And I now have had many experiences where it's like, I'm, I'm definitely a different person than I was in those respects. And I want different things than my past self wanted. And so, you know, going to the idea of 10X, it's a very uncomfortable, there are uncomfortable aspects of that reality that if you want to take it seriously, you're going to have to get comfortable with just actually doing things that terrify you or that don't seem, and, it, and, it, and I don't actually see it as a lack of authenticity. It's actually moving in the direction you want to go, but it is radically uncomfortable. It's new muscle memory. I like that space.
0: And that's actually where you become really flexible as a person. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Being Well today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Being Well. If you like Being Well, I think you'll really enjoy The Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. What do you think helps people get through some of the defensiveness that we're talking about? Whether it's like the the fear of failure or the lack of a future orientation or the allegiance to the past self? or like, What do you think helps people work with that? Because that's clearly just a huge stumbling block to be more the way that we want to be in the world, whether we contextualize that as like a 10x change or more of a, a qualitative internal shift, use whatever language speaks to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that for me, that defensiveness can be, can be a big stumbling block.
1: It's there for all of us. You know. In the language of the book, 2X will defend itself, but the past will defend itself. I think that there's a lot of tools that I use that make, I guess, flexibly moving forward into the future a lot smoother, although it's never easy. Like At the end of the day, you know, you're always going to have to confront letting go of things that you have attachments to and have built your identity around and ultimately allegiance and commitments to. One thing that really helps me, is number one, recognizing regularly, referencing regularly how different I am from my past self. Like even earlier Mm, this year, mm -hmm. right? Like if I'm, you know, I regularly do that. So I'm regularly in my journal and I'm regularly reflecting on how current Ben is different from last week Ben, you know, Mm. and I'm, and I'm analyzing those changes.
0: This is a great practice. I really like this.
1: I love it. I mean, me and Dan wrote an entire book on it called The Gap and the Gain, you know, honestly, but like, to me, that's a really beautiful thing. And so like, if I look back at my decision-making a year ago, my goodness, there's so many things that I would do differently. And I, And that doesn't mean that I resent my former self. I actually freaking love my former self, have massive empathy and compassion, and all things happen for me, not to me, all lessons learned. And so one is just the regular recognition of referencing how different I am from my past self and seeing that and appreciating that and acknowledging that and having that be a part of my selective attention. Like selective attention being, what are you looking for as a person? I do love kind of, there's a few lenses that really help me in terms of when things are either difficult or stuck or challenging. One is just truly the idea that everything does happen for me. I know that that's kind of woo-woo language, but like I see its application very deeply and it it connects with the concept of lessons are repeated until they're learned. So it's just like, if, if I'm having an experience where I'm creating challenge in my life, it may feel like I should look outward and say, what's happening to me, right? Why is this happening to me? Something, either my own inability to make a change or just something seemingly difficult in the situation that's happening. But if I just think like, this is exactly what I need, this is happening for me, lessons are repeated until they're learned, this is, le- this is lessons, then I'm more likely to actually be open to what's going on and observing my own relation to it and what's happening. And then I'm just honest. I don't need to be mad at anything. I'm just going through a process. I'm learning. And I don't need to be right. That's a fundamental aspect, I think, of the growth mindset is I don't need to be right. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't need to be right. My current self doesn't need to be right. My future self is going to know better. I'm open to learning. And that creates more of an empathetic, open view, which leads to a lot more growth.
0: Yeah, yeah. From a, from a values and skills standpoint, there are two things that I feel like you're really emphasizing here, which is, first of all, a lack of rigidity, which is run underneath the whole conversation. I used to be a very rigid, hypercritical person. That was my orientation. And then alongside that, a lot of compassion and understanding toward previous versions of yourself. Huge, huge. I mean, do I have moments where I reflect on my past behavior and go like, oof, airballed that one? Yeah, absolutely. To be clear, you know, I mean, nobody's perfect with this stuff. And it can be good to have an honest reflection around it too, right? That can be like a great learning tool. But if you're harshly punishing about any past mistakes that you made. Think about what that does to your behavior in the present, right? It makes it so you can't make a mistake because you know that your future self is just going to kick the crap out of your current self. And that's no fun at all. So, you know, the more that you can move towards self-compassion, it actually frees you to try new things on, to make mistakes. And, you know, most of the big growth that we're talking about comes from like an openness to embracing some risks.
1: I I love how you contextualize things, honestly. And um, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, how I see it is, is I know that my biggest mistakes are ahead of me. And, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and that's mm. okay, because there are mistakes in in context, right? Uh, I've heard it said there are no mistakes in life, only lessons, you know, and then lessons are repeated until they're learned. And And so, like, if I look back at 2022, some of my most amazing growth happened during that year, but also deeply, like, somewhat similar to what you were saying, like, oof, my goodness, come on, Ben, yeah. what, like, what the heck? But, like, sure. to my to myself in that context, the decisions I made were were, I was trying to weigh them as well as I could, you know? And so I do think that 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 flexibility towards the past is very helpful. And uh, I'm not dogmatic about the past. Like one of my favorite books in psychology is called Time and Psychological Explanation. And that book is about the psychology of time fundamentally. And from a psychology of time perspective, the past, present, and future are always simultaneous. I'm not operating as just Ben Hardy in the present. Like I'm operating as Ben, you know, I've got goals. I've got things I'm thinking about. I've got decisions to make. I've also got, you know, and so past, present, and future are always co-occurring and always influencing each
0: other. They're all present in your life right now to some degree. Totally. Always. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And think about it. I mean, if I have deeply unresolved trauma, of course that's going to impact me in the present and future, right? And so... How Brent's life talks about it, and he's the psychologist who wrote *Time and Psychological Explanation*. He's a really brilliant theoretical psychologist, but he talks about how it's more accurate to say that the present causes the meaning of the past than it is to say that the past causes the meaning of the present. And what he means by that is, is that, and you can see this today, like, you know, using one example of cancel culture, right? We look at the past through the lens of the present, and we use the present to shape the meaning of the past, and that's what we do with our own past. And, and so you can use that strategically. I could look at, as an example, my father being a drug addict, right? And I could, I, I, in the present, get to reconstruct and create the meaning of the past. And so the past, just as the future, is largely within my creative control in terms of meaning. And so I'm very flexible with my own past. I try to use it as a tool to propel me rather than as a as a tool to capture and you know, imprison me, and I, I'm just aware. Me, like anyone else, I'm. I am still. Certainly, I've got many hidden, hidden commitments and you know unresolved challenges. But to the extent I can, I try to let the past be for me. I try to let any difficult situation be for me, and try to just learn from it. I also know, kind of describing, you know, pulling it to the future. That my Mm -hmm. future self is way more compassionate towards the mistakes I'm making now than my current self is, you know? Mm -hmm. My future Mm -hmm. self has way more wisdom, empathy, compassion. They see things from a much higher vantage point. And so the more I can get connected to my future self, the more I can kind of see these things from a much broader context where it's like, I'm making freaking mountains out of molehills. Most of this stuff isn't going to matter anyways.
0: Yeah, the, the view that a lot of the stuff that is preoccupying us in the moment is going to just kind of come out in the wash a couple of years from now is, has been very helpful for me personally. And there's such a balance, right, in terms of what you're talking about with like considering the past, moving toward the future, framing past experiences as being, you know, for me, not to me, all of that different language. Because, of course, we know that, that we're, we're shaped by what happens to us to some degree. Of course. But a big part of that, what happens to us process is how we contextualize it and how we frame it. And there's a lot of uh, very complicated and nuanced research and, and thinking about like the idea of post traumatic growth. Because on the one hand, like, yes, this is an opportunity for people sometimes. On the other hand, trauma is trauma because it's painful and it's damaging and it's generally, you would avoid it if you could. And so I think that that framing, can be really helpful. Like, how can we turn experiences to work for us? Essentially, how can we turn them towards something that is going to benefit the future version of ourself? And also, it's good to like appreciate the challenges that we've overcome, the things that happened to us. I think about your own context, which I don't know too much about, but just growing up in a context with somebody who was addicted to a substance like that is a pretty intense environment, and I'm sure it had a lot of consequences for you in the moment that you then had to contextualize through the course of your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I, I continue to learn is, um, like as an example, my father, who was a very extreme drug addict for years, but if I was contextualizing that for my 15-year-old self, I certainly don't have a lot of comprehension as to why is he doing this? What's going on? He's letting me down. I'm making it more about my survival, honestly. And honestly, probably a lot of it, what yeah. do my friends think, right? Or <laughs> are just like, mm. you know, but... So I don't have his context and I, don't, and I don't have the capability, maybe, at least I didn't, frankly, for myself, have the capability to ask him questions and ask, what's led to this? What's going on? What's going on in your world? Can you, do you need help? You know, instead, I'm just, we don't see things, we, you know, there's that lens, you know, that, that line, we don't see things as, as they are, we see things as we are. You know, as I have continued to explore these ideas and, and what you said, I think one of the things you said earlier, which is meaningful, is, you know, that avoidance tendency you either can avoid or you can approach. Approach takes a lot more courage. There's, there's a, the willingness, you got to take a, an emotional risk, maybe a relational risk. Also the risk of having your mind changed about something or someone. Sometimes we want to keep the idea of someone. My dad is a villain. You know, he's the reason for my problems. But if you've got an approach orientation where you're willing to be open, back to that idea of openness, to having your mind changed, not needing to be right, maybe you'll learn something about the situation. In my case, asking my dad, how did things wind up the way they did? I think you got to be open to having your mind changed on certain things. And for me, I actually just, at this point now, I just want that, you know, like I'm always wanting to outstrip my current ignorance and just learning more and being totally happy with the progression of, you know, of where things go.
0: Yeah. And a lot I think of this contextualizing process is it's, it's not necessarily about just putting like a positive spin on it per se. It's about, there's a phrase that we use on the podcast a lot, which is developing a coherent narrative. And the way that this is normally applied is like a coherent narrative of your developmental experiences, like developing a narrative around what were the things that were actually happening to you, what was going on in your childhood context, you know, why was your dad acting this way, whatever it was. And these are really helpful things to have. Because if that, like, if that past is present with us right now, if the future is present with us right now to a degree, we got to come to terms with it if we're going to embrace those big changes that we've been talking about through the course of this conversation. So just going through a process with where you give yourself the space to change your view on something at all is, I think, really powerful.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite actual quotes from Dan Sullivan and and again he typically speaks to entrepreneurs but I think the idea, idea fits is, is he says entrepreneurs who are too tightly scheduled don't don't have the space to transform. And what often happens is in life whether you're an entrepreneur or just whatever is that typically you're so busy going to work, you know, distracting yourself on social media, whatever it is that you don't actually Give yourself the white space to deconstruct the past, to open yourself up to perspectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's one thing. Obviously, giving yourself the space to actually maybe look at the hidden patterns or the hidden commitments. But another, another thing altogether, just to give yourself a, a ton of space for new possibilities in the future. And I'm, I mean, one of the big, big ideas, I guess, from 10x, which has morphed my thinking in it, and it's led to a faster, faster ability to learn from the past or create the future is kind of a shift from looking at time quantitatively to looking at it more qualitatively, truly, where I don't need to fill my schedule. I can give myself five hours to just simply think and like maybe look at this situation or think about these different possibilities. And so, yeah, I think if, if, you, if you're open and willing to give yourself space and to think, I, I'm shocked at how much can change in short periods of time because from like a qualitative standpoint of time, you've just went through a change. And so now Mm -hmm. everything's different. And so, yeah, you have to give yourself the space. It's not just something that's just going to happen while you're busy and doing the same thing over and over. But if you're willing to give yourself the space, you can then make changes, which is what qualitative
0: time is all about. So one of the things that I think runs underneath the conversation that we've had so far is just how, to sum it up, change can be difficult. And we are change avoidant creatures, by and large. Like we like to stay more or less as we are. We fear failure. We fear disruption. We want to return to our homeostatic base, you know, use whatever whatever phrase you want to use here. But one of the things that's been really helpful for me, and I would be curious what your take on this is, is that it's been useful for me to increasingly recognize the costs of not changing in some meaningful way. Because one of the things that drives our change avoidance is like, okay, if I change in these ways, that change is going to be painful. I'm going to have to give something up. The future might be uncertain and so on and so on. So I should just stay in the safety of the present moment, right? So like the moment as it is right now is neutral, but the scary future is negative, right? And that gap is what is going to freak me out. Well, one of the things to really step into is an increasing acknowledgement of the ways in which the present has problems associated with it too, and the, the gains that could be realized by changing in some meaningful way, sure, but also just like getting real about your current circumstance and going, huh, do I want to keep on being this way for the rest of my life? And if I don't, what do I have to shift? I agree with that. I mean, I, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. From my
1: current self's perspective, my house is a mess, right? <laughs> Literally. I've got six kids. My house is a freaking mess. It's a disaster. (laughs) From my future self's perspective, it's beautiful. Mm. I mean, my future self loves nothing more than the fact that my kids have their toys out and stuff like that. Mm. And so Mm. it's kind of interesting because on one end, a million percent agree that there's enormous costs to not going through this change. I've actually, you know, from a risk standpoint, like this is a lot of the research from Daniel Kahneman and stuff people will actually take bigger risks to avoid loss than to to make desired gains right and yeah. so that that hits on exactly what you're saying that like mm-hmm. there are enormous challenges in the present and we will make bigger risks to maintain those challenges than to potentially you know create and seek new challenges in the future but what happens i think for me and i'd be interested in your take on this and maybe you know, i'd just be interested in your take on it but as i get more and more comfortable with creating a future it actually creates a lot of happiness in the present. Totally, It's an interesting idea, but I think it fits very well with Frankl, Viktor Frankl's research, and honestly, just his experience in, in the concentration camp, where he talks very heavily about having a why to live for, which allows you to bear anyhow. And he he talks about how, like, certainly he's, he describes, I mean, he speaks pretty much the same language as I would say in terms of future self, which is if you don't have a goal to strive for, then your present honestly has no meaning. And then you become retrospective and, and you start to decay. Like that's how he would describe it. Mm. But he talked about how once you really reach kind of a place of commitment and knowing and purpose and meaning, it's really weird what that does to your present. Because then all of a sudden, you actually can be very present. I, I honestly think what Frankel was saying is, is that your future self is, is the anchor to living a a functional life in the present. Yeah, without having that, like you, you, you become destabilized. And so he was describing in that book the ability to stare at a tree and just see the gorgeousness of it, the beauty of it. Having a 10x future actually makes the present better. It actually makes the problems of the present seem not as difficult. I don't need to be at my future self tomorrow. Like I actually am living it right now. And so... Yeah, because you're
0: engaged in that process with it, totally.
1: Yeah, but it's also okay... That there's enormous messiness and complexity and, and distance between. Like it's it, it's weird that it actually makes you more present and happy. I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any reaction to that, or if, I, if I'm literally if I've gone off the rails.
0: No, I, I think that you're talking about fulfillment. I, I think that we're we're finding a way to talk about what does it mean to live a fulfilled life, and that orientation toward whatever you want to call it, a more authentic version of who you are, a 10x self, uh, eudaimonic fulfillment. I, I think that that's really what you're speaking to, that the, the pursuit of that and having a pursuit orientation in general toward that possible future that focuses you and concentrates you and makes you think about all of the things that we've talked about over the course of the conversation, right? Makes you think about the 20%, brings you into a closer relationship with you know, this might be difficult right now, but I'm going to look back on this two or three or 10 years from now and go like, wow, this was a really beautiful time in my life with, you know, with my six kids and my messy house and, you know, working on my books and doing the whole thing. And and that's what can create fulfillment is being able to connect the dots between the work that you're doing right this second and where that's going to put you. Maybe 10 years from now and maybe even like more in a general frame of like where that's going to put you or a spiritual frame of where that's going to put you like whatever brings meaning to you and i think that that's kind of what you're what you're speaking to here
1: i'm serious you do a beautiful job put, like going direct to the point oh thank you 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 truly do and yeah, I, I appreciate I, that you know what what's kind of funny about what you're describing is the utter difficulty that people have striving for success with having fulfillment yeah that's real <laughs> I mean no that's very true. Totally. And I think that, you know, obviously everyone's kind of looking for for the psychological or or productive cheat codes, but I I do think that I think that there is truly something there with having having meanings and feel, you know, purposes to fulfill, learning from from the past and and being utterly fulfilled in the present. And I think that the I I think that that's kind of that's on a large part what I am striving to figure out and trying yeah. to learn about. And 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 I do agree with yeah, I'm pretty dang clear that like without a future to fulfill, it's very hard to be fulfilled in the present. I think humans need that.
0: Yeah, one of the kind of, I mean, maybe we'll do another one of these sometime with Rick because it would be so interesting to get his perspective because he has a very strong Buddhist background. And I have a kind of general exposure Buddhist background, but much less strong one that he has. I would
1: love to talk to him about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, because he's, uh, I wonder about this because in Buddhism in general, One of the things that you're not like striving for but one of the fundamental practices is engagement with the present moment just as it is Mm -hmm. on its own terms existing as it is now is forever this is your moment in time and so it's the only place where there is to be and a lot of what we've talked about during the conversation is how like the future can inform the present moment right how we can derive more meaning in the present from an engagement with like ooh, i'm moving toward this thing and i think that my dad if he were here would say something along the lines of that's great and also a really powerful practice is to become increasingly engaged with just the present as the present and to find more and more of enough in whatever that is for you without having to lean on these various I mean tricks kind of downplays like how meaningful these practices are but without having to lean on these various practices that move us more toward like an enjoyable Playing with what the future might hold for us—does that make sense? These are all things that are kind of hard to talk about.
1: No, you're you're dead on, and I I, I yeah. play in this intersection all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a really good book. Maybe your dad's read it. Maybe you have. It's called Already Free.
0: Oh, I don't know. It's it's not currently in my little bookshelf over here. Yeah, go ahead.
1: So so it's by Bruce Tift, psychologist. It's called Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path to Liberation. So what he does in this book is literally describe. The distinctions, obviously, between Western th- psychotherapy, which is more developmental, the yeah. Western way is, you know, to look at things from a developmental path, whereas obviously the Eastern is is, is different. You know, what I mean, but yeah. So he described kind of the the pros and cons, the benefits, and kind of ultimately finding a way to blend them together. I, I interestingly, I am becoming more and more present in the midst of all this, but I must acknowledge, at least for me, and again my future self will probably think differently, right? Which is really cool. I, I don't think it's possible truly for humans to operate without a future. You know, how does your dad go from getting out of bed to putting on his shoes, right? He walks to his, you know, to his closet, right? And, and, and he goes at one point from from being shoeless to being shoeful, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? In a weird yeah, way, yeah, like Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, and, and walking to his desk, right? And so like, I do get the, and, and this is now where we're kind of going into more like abstract and philosophical, but I, I truly think that, you know, it, in psychology, they call it dialectic, which is basically yeah. the yin and the yang, which is that yeah. both are actually true mm-hmm. and that our inability to explain it is just simply our lack of understanding. And so actually both mm-hmm. are, and in, in my, from my standpoint, both are true.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it, one of the things we talk about a fair amount on the podcast is the difference between in Buddhism, what's called being a householder, which is just essentially anybody who's not a monastic. And the difference between that and more like monastic practice, where you might get into a deep contemplation of engagement with the present moment. And it reminds me of a book by Jack Kornfield that has just my favorite title ever. It's called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, which is just the idea that you you go through these deep forms of practice, but then you have to move back into engagement with the world. And even for monastics, they have to engage in that ping ponging, that dialectic, from one to the other. Right? You got to chop wood, carry water, and that's that's your life until you can't chop wood and carry water anymore. But there is like, and there is just such a natural balance there between those two things, and we ping pong back and forth, like you were saying, from one to the other.
1: Yeah, I, I just got that book, by the way. Oh, Do you really? Have any other suggestions by him? Yeah. Is that the one you would suggest by him? Uh,
0: by Jack? That's the one that I would suggest. Yeah. After the ecstasy, the laundry. After the ecstasy, the laundry. Yeah, yeah. Jack's great. Love Jack. We've had him on the podcast. He's just an extremely practiced person also just in his own life, like a long monastic practice and then moved into the householder life where he's now a, a great teacher. One thing I will say that can easily
1: be lost unless you actually dig into the details of call it 10X is easier than 2X is that it is almost exactly counterintuitive to what most people would expect. And I try to peel those layers down, that it's like actually 2x is about more, 10x is about less, right? And we've already mm, talked about stripping mm-hmm. away the 80%. 2x is actually going to speed you up, whereas 10x literally is about slowing down, right? I talked about free time. It, it really is about being absorbed and going deeper into time. And you know whether it's letting go of a past or whether it's truly imagining a new future, I don't want it to get lost on people that 10x is not about more. It's actually about
0: less. I do do love the mix of these ideas. I would love to leave people at the end here with more of a process. And as we've been doing this, I've been taking a couple of notes. And I also thought about it a little bit before we started talking. And so this is going to weave together content from a bunch of your books, a bunch of the things that we've talked about in terms of how somebody could engage this more 10x process of thinking. And I'll just kind of give you some bullet points here and you let me know what you think at the end. Does that sound good? Sounds awesome. All right, great. So first of all, most of this starts with like engaging in some inquiry into where you are right now. Like you talk about insight, sometimes cultivating a sense of insight, a, a clarity around what that future self might look like and then sort of uh, an increasing acceptance of it. Maybe it's like who you are, maybe it's how your work life is going, whatever it is that you're interested in engaging with this process. So you gotta start with a little inquiry. And then particularly you talk about why you're doing what you're doing and developing an increasing awareness of that. And then from there, something that we touched on for a second that I thought was really great is the acceptance part of things, like sprinkling in here a little acceptance and commitment therapy. Reality is what it is, which is what people often struggle with, and that's where we generally need to apply a little bit of self-compassion. Then figuring out and leaning into whatever your 10x change is. Like what's the qualitative shift that would make a huge difference in your life, even if, and maybe particularly if, that sounds a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe it's starting to activate the defenses a little bit. Maybe it's starting to kind of shake the foundation of how things feel for you right now. And then you talk a lot about envisioning your future self and living from it. Like you've gone back in time and you have a unique opportunity to change things for the better. You know, if, you're, if you are if you are your future self in this present moment and hey, 20 years from now, we would really wish that we could go back to right now. And we can. And that's like a really beautiful thing. And then letting that future self make the plan that draws you toward that 10x way of being. And so for starters, I'm wondering if there's anything that you would like to add to that little outline I just drew there.
1: That's pretty cool. I, I do love acceptance and commitment therapy for sure. I think that how I look at it is, is that I'm very comfortable, and maybe this comes from my background as a writer, with the idea that the draft of a book is going to be very different from the next draft. Like, you know, and I'm very comfortable with ugly drafts. You know what I'm saying? And so my current view of my future self is a draft. Next week, it'll be a different draft, right? So I don't even get obsessively, you know, but also my view of my past is a draft, right? And next week, I'll have a different draft. And so it's a creative process and it's an an iterative process. Um, One of my favorite quotes from Naval Ravikant is that, you know, he was talking about the 10,000 hour rule, but he basically said that it's not 10,000 hours, it's 10,000 iterations that creates an outlier. And you know what I'm describing is an iterative process of continuously iterating your past, iterating your future, and, and, and learning from both continuously so that you're continuously dialing the direction you want to go that, that is valuable and meaningful to you, and you're continuously learning from and adjusting.
0: And really opening to that as a possibility is one of the things that I think you really emphasize, like just the embracing of the possibility of that kind of an iterative process. Hugely.
1: I mean, I am a big, big believer of openness to possibility, but also openness to choice and also openness to change. So I I believe I can make choices. You know, obviously my choices are going to be constrained by many things, but I mean, I can make a choice if I want to, to go and write a book, right? I can make a choice to stop writing books. I can make a choice to go become a Buddhist, right? Like I have choice. I, I think at the crux of all this, honestly, is learning. Uh, Truly, truly, like learning and fulfillment. And, and, And I don't think you can be fulfilled without learning. And I think that there's massive fulfillment in learning. And I think that's actually a big part of courage is you make a choice and you're comfortable with the outcome one way or another.
0: The iterative process element is really, really, really important because even in that kind of like a detailed outline that I gave, it's funny how like words and structure can kind of lie to us or orient our thinking in a certain type of way sometimes. And in that laid out structure, I was talking about, oh, acting from your future self, bringing your future self into this moment. There's a framing in that, that that future self is static, that there is some right future self that you are aiming for, and you are taking that perfect object and putting it in the now. And you just broke that down and said, well, no, the future self itself is also iterating. So you're you're not getting rigid on either side of this process. And so it's like a good reminder, yeah, to just like retain your own psychological flexibility along the way.
1: As odd as it sounds, it actually harkens to the present, right? Which is in the present, I'm iterating the past. And in the present, I'm reiterating the future. And so as weird as that sounds, it's a deep embodiment in the present. I'm not constrained by the future self that my past self created, right? Like I'm in the present, a different person. And so, you know, I call it future self 2.0. Like the future self I'm projecting, if I actually got there, the future self that my future self would project, I can't even imagine it just like my past self couldn't have imagined the futures I'm now creating. Truly, it allows you to, can if you choose to, create 10x results if you want. Like, you know, if, if I wanted to, I believe I could go sell 10 million books and maybe I will, right? It's going to require massive change in development and commitment or maybe halfway along the way, I'll decide that instead I want to, you know, bag that all together and just totally spend all my time traveling with my kids, right? Totally, that then will totally. be 10x for my future self, right? And so I just think that it's open to the fact that you will change along the
0: way. Hmm. Oh, I love that. And Ben, thanks so much for doing this with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. This was great. Forrest, it was fun. My conversation with Ben today went a lot of directions that I didn't really expect when we first signed on to have this interview. And I was really grateful for that. I was glad that he was open to talking about his own history, how he's grappled with some of these issues, And then even his openness to wading out into kind of the deep end of the pool with me when we started talking toward the end about the future and the present moment and how they can interface with each other in a variety of very cool ways. And even some of the Buddhist psychology and philosophy stuff really enjoyed that part of the conversation. We began the conversation by talking about the difference between 10x thinking and 2x thinking. And that's one way to frame it. One of the things that Ben said throughout the conversation is that that's just like a useful phrase for framing things when really the emphasis is on the idea of qualitative change. What is the big qualitative change that you could make in your life that would have an enormous influence on all the other puzzle pieces? What is, uh, to use a phrase that my dad likes, that Rick likes to use, what is the trim tab on the ship that you could move to get the whole thing going in a different direction? And a lot of people, myself included, can really encounter a lot of resistance around this idea. The idea of, of even the possibility of a 10x qualitative change can be very destabilizing because often in it, there is an inherent giving up of a lot of the things that are going on in your life right now in order to make a change this meaningful. And there are different kinds of giving up, of course. Uh, ben talked about giving up certain aspects of his identity as he stepped into being more of a father to his children. And this idea can operate in a lot of different spheres and a lot of different ways. Ben, for instance, talked about stepping into his identity as a dad more and how that was a huge qualitative shift for him, a huge 10x change. And for me, a 10x change was stepping out of this identity that I had for a really long time as being This very cognitive, top-down, rigid person who was very constricted in my behavior with other people because I wasn't willing to feel a variety of painful emotional experiences that came alongside opening up and releasing control. And one of the ways that we can step into these big forms of change is by increasingly embracing our future identity— the person that we wish to be, a more authentic version of who we are, a vision for the future that we have for ourselves. There are a lot of different ways to talk about this, but we can think in terms of that future identity and then act from it in the present. One of the things that Ben talks about in his books that is really consistent with some of the material from Rick is this idea of being drawn toward our future rather than driven by our past. And along those lines, we talked a lot about recontextualizing past experiences, which is pretty similar to the idea of creating a coherent narrative, which is something that we talk about on the podcast pretty regularly. And then we talked for a while about some of the things that support us in doing that. And something that I thought was really interesting that Ben emphasized was compassion being kind to your past self, which then allows you to change so much in the present, in part because you know that your future self won't be as mean to your current self as it could be. And this is a really sneaky way that developing the capacity for greater self-compassion can support us in changing in really meaningful ways. Change almost always involves risking a mistake, right? So if you're somebody who can't risk a mistake, you're going to find it really hard to change. And if you're somebody who really punishes yourself for every mistake you make, there's a huge downside to making those mistakes, and this disincentivizes change. And when I first realized this, it really blew my mind, because it took self-compassion from being the sort of soft and fuzzy woo-woo kind of thing to being this incredibly practical tool for positive growth, which is really what we're talking about on the podcast, To hit a couple of bullet points here in the recap really quick, we talked about something called the end of history illusion, which is basically the idea that people radically underestimate how much they're going to change in the future. They always think that the present is the end of history. But if we look back toward the past, we look 10 years into the past, we can see how much we've changed. And just that practice of looking back toward the past and going, oh, I really am radically different from the person that I was five or 10 years ago can then help us be perspective about that, can then help us look toward the future and open up to the possibility that five or 10 years from now, things will also be radically different. And this is a great way to cultivate another thing that we talked about psychological flexibility, the view that things are changeable at all, the ability to hold different things inside of our mind, and really loosening up a feeling of rigidity around our personality structure. It's incredibly powerful to move into a stance that your personality is changeable at all, Many, many people think of their personality as something that is fixed, that is unchangeable, that will always just be the way that it is. We are essentially a prisoner to the present moment. And in order to make these big changes, we really need to step away from that view. Then toward the very end of the conversation, we talked about this dialectical balance between truly being in the present moment, being with it just as it is, enjoying it for its own merit, while also having this future self-orientation. And Ben talked a lot about how the past and the future are still with us right now in the present. The past influences us and how we think about our future influences us as well. And as you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I'm not a super wooey person, but there is something about having the future and the past and the present all with us right now in this moment that has this really like beautiful feeling of synergy associated with it. And I think I really like it because it opens me up to my imagination more and it helps me relax that rigidity around thinking that the present just needs to continue as it is forever and ever. And the power of imagination was a a subtle theme that ran throughout the conversation. So that's it for today's conversation with Dr. Ben Hardy. If you would like to find Ben's work, you can find him online at benjaminhardy.com. And you can find his new book, 10X is Easier Than 2X, wherever books are sold. And I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast episode. If you've somehow made it this far and you aren't subscribed yet, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.